welcome to Counterpunch Radio. My name is Eric Dreitzer. Thanks so much for tuning in, for coming back. First-time listeners, welcome aboard. It's a great episode today. I'm very, very excited about it. Before I can turn to my guest, though, I want to do a little pitch for Counterpunch, as I always do, because we really do need to defend our independent media these days. We are, in many ways, under assault from all sides, especially if you're on the left, if you have a progressive outlook on the world, and if you really do value independence in your journalism and in your political analysis. And that's what Counterpunch is. It it really kind of has maintained a, sort of an outpost in the wilderness for the last 25 years. And to keep Counterpunch going, a great way is to become a subscriber, to get a copy of the print magazine mailed to you. Imagine print ink on paper. It's a, it's a relic of the past and we still do it. So that's one way you can, of course, make a donation through PayPal and uh, pick up the phone. You can call the Counterpunch office. However you would like to do it, we would be so greatly appreciative. Uh, so with that out of the way, I'm really excited to turn to my guest today. He's somebody who probably needs no introduction, although I'm going to give one. Uh, this is this is somebody who, who I respect almost more than I can really describe here. Uh, he is a consumer advocate, probably the most well-known consumer advocate any of us know. He is the author of the brand new book, How the Rats Reformed the Congress, just published a few months ago, among many, many other books. Uh, It is Ralph Nader. He is the host of the Ralph Nader Radio Hour. He is also the author of a weekly column that you can get by going to the website nader.org, signing up for the column to be delivered right to your mailbox every week. Ralph Nader, thank you so much for coming on Counterpunch Radio. Yeah, it's a real pleasure, Eric. I get your Counterpunch magazine, and uh, people ought to know, uh, most of the time, the articles there are uh, on subjects never covered by the either mass media or public media. Thank you for that, and we do try to make sure that we focus on a lot of those issues that go underreported or completely omitted, but um, that's also what you do in many ways, and one of the things that you've done recently that I find so interesting is kind of branching out in terms of your own output. You're incredibly prolific, but in terms of books, I think many of us have encountered your books over the years and would be surprised to know that you recently published a fiction book, so I'd like to begin by asking asking you about this book, what is it, and what inspired you to write this kind of book, which really does seem to be somewhat of a departure from what you've written previously. Because it's a fiction book designed to get people into nonfiction and organize in every congressional district to take control of Congress, to whom they've delegated power that's been used against them on behalf of Wall Street and the uh, military machine war, war uh, empire. And you know, you, today you, you do a nonfiction book the way we did in the 70s, Who Runs Congress? It was the best-selling book ever in history on Congress. Today, people just don't read, whether they're overloaded. So I thought I'd do the fable. There is a huge rat infestation, by the way, in Washington, D.C. I thought I'd do a fable where the rats would start coming up the toilet bowls of the leaders of the House, and you can imagine the frantic... Uh, uh, terror that uh, flowed from that and the uh, w- the desire by members of the House to suppress it and, and that they can't even take care of the rats in the House. They don't want to be laughing stock around the country. So the idea is to make people laugh themselves seriously enough to form Congress Rat Watchers Group, which they can do by going to ratsreformcongress.org 
and they get a, a tutorial exactly. Here's how you form a watchdog group for citizens. Doesn't take that many, especially if you're going after members of Congress to do things that a majority of the people, often left right, back home they want living wage, full Medicare for all, cracking down on corporate crime, breaking up the big Wall Street banks that are too big to fail cutting back on the bloated military budget and putting it into repairing Main Street USA, the so-called infrastructure of bridges and public transit and many other things like cleaner drinking water and proper sewage systems that are all crumbling. And that's what it's about. So it's really hilarious in the first 30 pages. Uh, I've had people in Congress call it disgusting, revolting. I say, really? What do you think you're all doing? Uh, how many people have you killed in Iraq? How are you blowing apart Afghanistan? Uh, how many people are you cheating by, by not regulating uh, corporations? Uh, how many uh, elections are you going to sell to the highest bidder? You're talking this book starts disgusting and revolting. Well, the people are different, Eric. And we're getting orders for this book five at a time. Now, I've never seen that. So I'm wondering whether they're starting to discuss this in their living rooms on how to start these Congress watchdog groups, which are really a piece of cake. You get 10, 15 people who say, look, I like people who have hobbies. Some of them are, you know, bird watchers, stamp collectors, coin collectors, all power to them. But our hobby is going to be Congress. And we're, we're going to look at American history. And whenever there have been big changes, women's uh, suffrage, civil rights movement, environmental, it never involved more than 1% of the population back home locking arms and marching, demonstrating, organizing, focusing on their two senators and representatives and to turn it around, especially uh, when they have a majority public opinion. We have a lot of changes in this country that are 70 80% or more in the polls. I did a book called Unstoppable, the Emerging Left-Right Alliance to Dismantle the Corporate State. And in page 60, 61 or so, there are 24 major areas that people want changed, want reformed, like cleaning up elections, by the way, and, and criminal justice reform. And so that's why I ask people, look, just get yourself to ratsreformcongress.org and, and see how easy it is. You start a letterhead group, you, you announce it to your two senators, representatives, and if you get 500 clearly written signatures on a petition, you can summon and get a U.S. senator to your own town meeting. Why not have our own town meetings with our own agendas where we summer, summon the representatives in Congress to whom we have delegated this constitutional power called we the people. Now, even if you don't want to start a Congress watch group, but you want to get your, the attention of your senator or representative for your own issues, your own concerns, go to ratsreformcongress.org and you'll see how you can get the book and you can get the knowledge to empower you so you don't just give up and, and withdraw. Indeed. And the book is so fascinating to me because on the one hand, it, you know, it's quite easy to call it a fable or an allegory, which it is in, in many ways. But 
On the other hand, it really does seem to be a lot more than that. And you were kind of alluding to it just there in your comments about really kind of providing a blueprint uh, for some of the things that can be done. And, and that's one way of looking at it. And I certainly was thinking about that as I read through the book. But the other thing that I think it's really successful at is helping people to envision, really visualize what a political revolution in the United States might actually look like, because it seems such an abstract concept that just seems so far away. And yet when you read this book, it's like, wow, that really could happen. It could happen. and Nobody can stop it from happening. I mean, you'll see the rumble from the people starts in this book when the derision, the mass derision, uh, because a reporter broke the story that these members of Congress running around trying to suppress the rats and they're poisoning their own environment with rat poison and all kinds of frantic calling on the executive branch uh, for the uh, for the military to come and uh, and then people around the country who really want to take back control of Congress saying hey hey the tens of millions of people are finally paying attention to Congress they're watching these late night comedy shows and the derision over the uh, chasing after the rats that are scurrying everywhere for water and for food. These are not anthropomorphic acts. This is not Mickey Mouse. They just do what rats do, and Congress is full of parties and crumbs falling and food and water, etc. Uh, so there's a whole rat uh, momentum heading toward uh, the Congress. But then the, the groups who are mobilizing, this is where it's so fascinating, Eric. You put your finger on the word envision. If you can't envision uh, real possibilities, how are you going to ever roll your sleeves up and get them done? And for example, one of the techniques that the uh, reformers uh, uh, used was massive round-the-clock encircling of Congress with hundreds of thousands of people with uh, bullhorns uh, saying, Resign, resign, resign to the beat of the Roman army. Boom, 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 boom. And, and people just came in and, you know, the media played it all over the country. And so they kept coming in in relays and relays. Meantime, inside Congress, they're hearing this thing. Boom, 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 boom. And some of them defect. So you've got about 120 real progressive members of Congress who cross over and they join with the crowd. Meanwhile, the rigorous lobbying starts and the, and specialists on taxation, on housing, on social security, on Wall Street uh, uh, accountability, on uh, the war machine, on the empire. So I have all congressional hearings, one after the other. And one thing that the book teaches is if you don't do this fast, you can't get it done as likely. Because, you know, Harry Truman pushed for universal health insurance, and we still don't have it. And Lyndon Johnson got Medicare and Medicaid and said, don't worry, we'll get the rest. Well, we didn't get the rest in the 1960s, thanks to the Vietnam War. But um, in other words, each issue that attracted millions of people uh, helped other issues that attract other millions of people. And so we... we we change the labor laws. We ex expand the ability of people to band together. Uh, we take control of what we own. We own the public airways. We own the public lands. We own trillions of dollars of research and development. They're given free to drug companies and set up 
companies in Silicon Valley with basic research they never want to spend on. We own uh, uh, trillions of dollars of pension funds and mutual funds that control the majority of stock on the New York Stock Exchange. They, could, they control all these big companies. And nobody can stop us from mobilizing on this. Uh, what we own and don't control, see, because the, you know, the oil, gas, and timber companies have control over our public lands, but that's only because we let them. We still own the public lands. We own the pensions. We own the mutual funds. And, and that's why this book moves really quickly. It's got a great cover by Mr. Fish, a classic cartoon, where basically uh, it's in the form of a toilet where the, the rat picks up the top of the toilet, which, of course, looks like the Capitol Dome, right? <laughs> I tell you, there should be discussions all over America here. There's so many uh, book clubs, little book clubs all over the country. And you know, Eric, 90% of them, uh, don't touch fi nonfiction. They don't want to have any nonfiction books. They don't want any, you know, controversy. No kidding. That, I mean, democracy is built on dissent and discussion and debate and controversy. Anyway, 90% or more, they only deal with fiction books, like Oprah Winfrey selected uh, fiction book. So this is the fiction book, How the Rats Reformed the Congress. Go for it. You can buy five at a time at a discount. And I made this offer. And I got one response. I said when I was on KPFA, I said, I'll do 20 minutes by phone to anyone who gets 10 people in their living room with 10 books, How the Rats Reformed the Congress, to discuss it. And I'll get on the phone, and we'll have a discussion for 20 minutes. So this is the offer to your listeners, too. Boy, I hope some of us are going to take you up on that offer. That would be a lot of fun. And also, speaking as a former educator at the high school level in, a pub in public high schools, this is the kind of book that really does have a potential impact for younger people as well, because it's not, you know, it doesn't necessarily require a lot of previous knowledge. It doesn't necessarily require an in-depth understanding of the minutia of Washington. It really does kind of come across in a way that really, I think, is palatable for all audiences. Yeah, exactly. It's it's easy to take. It's funny. It's serious. Strategic tactics. Everything that's necessary. It basically says to the people, "Look, you're the you're the sovereign power. Uh, that's a good start. We the people. They don't say we the corporation, do they? In the in the Constitution, they don't say we the Congress. They say we the people. And then you got all of the huge wealth that people own as a commons that I just listed. And then you've got the delegated power to Congress, which is the critical branch in our government. It's the smallest but most powerful branch, obviously, the declare war power, the tax power, the spend power, the confirmation of nominee power for the judges, etc. And it happens to be the most personal. We know their names. They have to come back. Money means a lot to the members in Congress. It doesn't mean anywhere near what votes mean. Votes organized and focused can nullify gobs of money from Wall Street. I think that's an important point that people really do need to chew over. Now, uh, 
I mentioned in the introduction that you're so prolific, and, and, and part of the reason I said that is because uh, How the Rats Reformed the Congress is not the only book that you published in 2018. There's another book that I found really fascinating, and, and I would recommend to everybody, To the Ramparts, How Bush and Obama Paved the Way for the Trump Presidency and Why It Isn't Too Late to Change Course. Now, this book is, I mean, it's also very interesting, full of these really fascinating kind of fictionalized perspectives or fictionalized letters and uh, imagined perspectives, etc. But the political content is really what I want to get at with you here. Um, can you explain how exactly, in your view, Bush and Obama paved the way for Trump? I mean, do you mean that in a procedural sense, like the use of executive orders and things like that? Or did you mean in terms of discourse, neoliberal policy? How exactly do you envision this sort of paving the way for Trump? Actually, in both, both the substantive policies and procedure. I really uh, started with Bill Clinton, but you know sometimes there's not enough space on the cover of a book. Uh, just assume you're Trump and you're a failed casino magnate and you watch a lot of television. So you turn on the TV and you watch Bill Clinton get away with adultery, with abuse of women, all documented, and he still gets reelected and he's still popular. And Trump says, hmm, that's my type of guy, right? <laughs> or he's thinking of running for president ever since he was 40 years old, Trump. Okay, then he turns the TV on, <laughs> and George W. Bush comes. And George W. Bush starts a criminal war of aggression. He kills over a million Iraqis, three, millions of refugees, blows the country apart, blows trillions of dollars that could rebuild America and communities back home, and he gets reelected. Well, you know, Trump is a control freak. He's an autocrat. He's a bully boss. And he's watching this, and he said, he's my type of guy. That's what I want to be like when I'm president. What I says goes, and I can get away with anything. And then Obama comes. And Obama expands the drone warfare and he expands the empire in a lot of ways. And he lets Wall Street off the hook. He doesn't prosecute anybody in Wall Street. And he doesn't prosecute his predecessor for declared war crimes. I mean, violating treaties, violating the Constitution, it was never declared by Congress. UN says it was uh, it, it, a violation of international law to invade Iraq and never threatened us, etc. It was based on lies and cover-ups and deceptions. And Trump says to himself, not bad. You know, I've done a few things on the edge as a big business, and uh, I got a lot of Wall Street buddies. And Look what they did, and they got away with it. Well, you can see how he was emboldened, right? All the things that his predecessors did, he would like to do or already did. And that emboldened him. And then when you look at the substance of it all, you know, Obama basically talked a good game in terms of the environment and uh, did a few good things. But by and large, in the consumer, labor, and environmental area, he sat on his knees. He didn't do anything. Uh, he, he promised nine fifty an hour minimum wage in, in his campaign in 2008. He never talked about it until after 2012. And at consumer protection, forget it. Uh, the Food and Drug Administration was one of the worst in the history of the agency. 
And what did he do on climate change, other than make uh, climate disruption, rather, uh, other than make speeches? Uh, so you know, he he opened up drilling. He wanted to drill off the coast of uh, the U.S. All three coasts stopped the Arctic drilling under pressure from people and lawsuits, but. He laid the basis for all this. He expanded the drone warfare. And above all, as Counterpunch pointed out, he fell for Libya's, he fell for Hillary's uh, war on Libya. Hillary listened to some guy in France and ran over to the White House and said, we can uh, overthrow Gaddafi? Easy. And Secretary Gates said, no, no, you don't know what's going to happen after you overthrow Gaddafi in a tribal society, it's going to blow the country into chaos, violence, going to spill into African countries nearby. Don't do it. And Obama says, Hillary, I'm all with you. And he did it. Now listen to this. This was the most extreme illegal use of presidential outlawry in American history. Why do I say that? Okay. It was a war on Libya. By the way, Gaddafi was cutting deals and he was disarming nuclear uh, starts or whatever. He, he was turning around. Uh, uh, the U.S. liked what he was doing. And uh, so uh, look, look, look at the illegality here, Eric. There was no declaration of war. There was no authorization of money for the Libyan attack by the U.S. There was no appropriation of money. There was no hearings. It was a total war crime, and it's blowing apart Libya year after year. And as we speak, there's now a civil war emerging in Libya, and it spilled over into neighboring African countries, all kinds of weapons and guerrilla warfare and terrorism and so forth. So you can see how, in many other ways, that you know, there's no time to elaborate, counterpunch has... Uh, done a lot of good critiques on uh, Clinton, Bush, and uh, uh, and Obama, but Trump didn't just come down uh, like a UFO here. He didn't come out of whole cloth. As a matter of fact, Trump is teaching us very important lessons that we better learn. Lesson number one: if we don't do our homework as voters, we're going to turn our country into a classic dictatorial regime. It's already on the way. The democracy is deteriorating. The concentration of power in corporations and the corporate state is continuing unabated. Lesson number two, get rid of the uh, Electoral College. This is ridiculous. The Democrats are so stupid. They've lost two elections in 16 years, 2000 and 2016, when they won the popular vote handily and they lost the Electoral College. Are they trying to neutralize it by jumping on this uh, campaign that started in San Francisco called nationalpopularvote.com or .org. That's where they get the states to pass laws saying that if we reach 270 electoral college votes, we'll throw our electoral votes to whoever wins the national popular vote. So you don't even have to amend the Constitution. Do the Democrats get behind that? Oh, no, no. No, they've got politically correct language to take care of. They've got... Um, a real problem there. And, and the third lesson that Trump is teaching us is, is the following, that if we don't focus on 
the, the things that really matter to people where they live, work, and raise their families. And if we get uh, diverted by stuff like Russiagate or politically correct expulsions of people, uh, if, if we turn away from the Franklin Delano Roosevelt uh, mission with his, all his flaws of bread and butter politics, and if we, in effect, go into what, uh, what has been called superficial identity politics, that is, you go nuts when there's ethnic, racial, and gender slurs, and you say, get out, get out, get out, but you don't do anything about the basic abuses of women and ethnic groups and racial groups in the low-income areas, for example, of our country. That's what's called superficial identity politics, and it's devouring the Democratic Party, and they're losing their blue-collar workers, and they're losing elections. One thing that you alluded to in terms of lessons that we're learning from Trump uh, that I I think you were kind of getting at, and I want to draw it out a little bit further if I could— He's teaching us all, I think, a lesson on uh, media and in particular on the bankruptcy of our mass media. Uh, One thing that we've kind of been hammering endlessly at Counterpunch over these last three years is really the necessity of focusing on all of the real crimes, the policy crimes, all of these other things, rather than, I guess, what you could call really a melodrama of Russiagate, a sort of soap opera. And so... I I guess what I want to ask you is, what's your take on the media's obsession with Trump and Russia? I mean, there are some who uh, argue in various ways that this is some kind of a, you know, that they're involved in a conspiracy to foment a war with Russia. Others are simply saying that this is really just about ratings, ad revenue, and profits over, you know, the, the public interest and the public good. Is it bad journalism? How do you read the media and what the media has demonstrated over these last three years? It's, a, it's cheap journalism. It's inexpensive for Rachel Maddow to spend half her shows on Russiagate. You, you don't have to do much new homework. You don't have to look into how uh, millions of people are losing their pensions. You have to do work. But if you just keep every day, it's like a soap opera, right? You just keep every day. It's simple. And you can use clever language and take a poke at uh, Fox News and Cable and, you know, her adversaries over there. Uh, it's cheap. It's sensational, and there's a drama to it because they, you know, develop all kinds of scenarios and and horrible hypotheticals. And so MSNBC has, has got has got this ditto head journalism because they don't want to do the hard work. You know, they never put progressive on MSNBC. I never get on MSNBC. Now, they just put corporate liberals on Hillary, Bill Clinton style, and. Uh, and and, uh, and they get a base, and they get, you know, their one or two million uh, dollars uh, a year uh, if they can attract two, two and a half million people. Very small audiences, but it gets very lucrative because they, they stick to the melodrama. The viewers say, oh, I wonder what the next chapter is. Now, on the Russiagate, first of all, the U.S., as P- Counterpunch knows, have over, has overthrown over 60 governments since World War II. That's literally overthrown, like the Iranian government in 1953, which ushered in the Shah again and the tyranny and the government of Guatemala in about the same time. Uh, Who are we to talk? Number two, while we're accusing the Russians of interfering in the election, yeah, and they tried to mess around on uh, Trump's side. There's no doubt about it, but whether it, it 
interfering in theirs. We're interfering in Ukraine. We're interfering everywhere. There isn't a country in the world that we have an interest in that we're not interfering in their election. I mean heavy-duty stuff, too, not just uh, you know social media uh, stuff. Uh, and, um, and the third is, uh, look, look, at the, uh, look at the obtuseness. What country had its election interfered with in the last few weeks massively on one side by President Trump? And not a squeak about it. Not a single issue, not a single article raised. Israel. Yep. Trump, Trump is an anti-Semite against Arabs. You can write two books on that. He attacks Syrian refugees in this country when he was in the campaign in South Carolina. Two little families that came uh, fleeing the terror and uh, chaos and the uh, civil war in, in Syria. And he's never stopped. He, and he, he cut off aid to the Palestinian Arabs and the children, uh, hundreds of millions of dollars, while he expands billions of dollars of aid to Israel. Uh, he allows the annexation uh, and the dominion, rather, of the Golan Heights. He's constantly beating up on Palestinian Arabs. And he's not very uh, uh, tolerant with Arab Americans in the U.S. He's an anti-Semite against Arabs. You know, and there are two anti-Semitisms. One, one against Jews and one against Arabs. And Alex Coburn wrote a book on the anti-Semitism industry. So uh, uh, he interfered enormously on Netanyahu's side. It's really surprising that the Israeli opposition that wants a peace agreement, etc., didn't make a big deal out of this. But he did, and everybody knows it. You read the New York Times, Washington Post, you don't have to do much research. He got the uh, capital move to, you know, the U.S. Embassy to Jerusalem, the Golan Heights thing, uh, one after another, uh, cut off uh, ch charity aid to Palestinian Arab children, one after another. And uh, so who are we to speak? Who are we to talk about this? We're the biggest interferers in uh, foreign elections the world has ever seen. I mean, Jimmy Carter, when he goes abroad to monitor elections in third world countries he has five criteria and if those five criteria are not met like paper ballot counting like multi-parties uh, he will not go to be a, a monitor uh, at the invitation of uh, of the country and then he came back once about 10 years ago and someone asked him the question and he said america is is no longer a democracy Here's a former president. You think it would be headlines in the New York Post, right? America is no longer a democracy. Never mind the republic democracy thing. You right. can be uh, you can be a republic and still be a democratic society. Exactly, and and, and Jimmy Carter is kind of uh, as many historical figures are has kind of been whitewashed in terms of things he said and his comments about uh, that he made about the U.S. being an oligarchy, comments he made about the democratic system in Venezuela, many other things that Jimmy Carter has said that have been kind of papered over by the liberal establishment who would rather he just kind of be this grandfatherly figure that's soon to be forgotten. Yeah, and um, I would say the corporate liberal. We've got to get that word everywhere. Corporate crime, corporate welfare, corporate media, corporate-driven wars. Uh, liberals are not using the right language. Don't, aren't you amazed, Eric, when you have real progressive writers 
even like Chris Hedges. And he uses the word neoliberalism. I said once to Chris, I said, what the hell does neoliberalism mean to, to the man or woman on the street? I said, why do you use words like that? You're talking about corporate global takeover. That's what neoliberalism is. Whether it's trade, investment, banking, war machines, government contracts. I think a, a counter-French can do us a big favor by listing the kind of words that should be replaced. How about in the healthcare industry? Don't you like the word vend? Instead of saying seller, they use the word that the industry uses, provider. Hey, uh, here's, here's a drug subsidized by the U.S. government, uh, says a big drug company, and it's going to help your ailment. Uh, it's only $150,000 a year per patient. Don't you like those kind of providers? <laughs> and, and and what provisions they're providing, exactly. <laughs> That's um, right. Well, speaking so, of, speaking, yeah. uh, I'm sorry, go ahead. No, I, go I ahead. No, I, I was just going to try to segue since I know we're running out of time here. Um, you, you mentioned corporate takeover, corporate greed, and that really does kind of raise a particular uh, issue in my mind that I want to get your comment on since you've recently written about it, um, and certainly it's right in your wheelhouse. Uh, you, you recently wrote a pretty scathing piece, I think, about Boeing and the recent 737 MAX 8 crashes. Uh, I would highly recommend people check out that piece uh, entitled, Boeing Homicides Will Give Way to Safety Reforms If Flyers Organize. Now, the reason I bring up this is, is partially to get your comment on Boeing, but also something I noticed in the way that you wrote that piece, because in fact, it's it's really making two distinctly different but clearly interrelated points. On the one hand, it's it's a piece about corporate greed, about Boeing putting profits over safety in the way that I think doesn't really need all that much explanation. And then on the other hand, it really does uh, uh, root itself on this idea of the power of collective organizing on the part of consumers. So can you talk about these like that, that dynamic in that piece and your take on A, obviously, what's happened with the Boeing 737 MAX, and then B, uh, the prescription that you provide in that article? Well, the Boeing 737 MAX was an unstable design that flowed from corner cutting and the refusal to invest in a clean sheet new airplane that they started to do in 2011 because they wanted to catch up with Airbus 320 NEO. And so they put bigger engines on. It changed the center of gravity and the aerodynamics, and it led to the, the plane being uh, prone to stall, which is lethal. And instead of prone, uh, instead of uh, stall proof, it's stall prone. And we lost our grandniece in the crash in Ethiopia, an emerging leader on global health, no nonsense, intellectually rigorous, tremendously compassionate, community based in terms of health. Her name was Samia Rose Stumo. And Boeing is not going to get away with this. The MAX will never fly again. There's no software fix, no software patch, no software glitch. It's never going to fly again. It's a killer plane. And Boeing's executives suppressed their own engineers and threw their way around at the FAA and on Capitol Hill to get what they want. And this time, they're not going to get what they want. 
because the passengers are going to organize. We're going to have a consumer boycott, and the button is going to read, X the max. No more 737 max. They want to sell planes, narrow-bodied passenger planes. They can sell the 737 NG that's already ready for sale. They never sell that 737 max again. Imagine a new plane, and in five and a half months, they killed 346 people criminally. We hope that they're going to be criminally prosecuted, not just civilly uh, uh, pursued under the law of torts. The FBI, Justice Department, has opened up a criminal probe. There's a grand jury uh, operating in Alexandria on the subject, and the Inspector General of Department of Transportation, who's a really effective person, is going to push this uh, for, for all the way in terms of airline passenger safety. And anybody listening to this think, well, that's somebody else's tragedy. They want to sell 5,000 of these planes, uh, listeners. 5,000. You'll be on those planes unless we ground these planes permanently. So go to nader.org. You'll see three articles that I uh, wrote on the subject. And there are going to be a lot of whistleblowers, a lot of people coming out, uh, noting what the Boeing executives did, led by CEO, uh, who made uh, $11,000 an hour last year, Mullenberg, and his cohorts. Uh, They should resign uh, because they're presiding over in this case, a criminal enterprise, and if it continues, it's going to devour a good slice of Boeing itself. So in their own interest, they should be replaced by new management. 100%. And the other aspect of this story that's really fascinating and ties into so much of the work that you've done over decades is that it demonstrates once again the the uh, lethal impact that regulatory capture has. Because Boeing dominates the FAA. Boeing is able to basically dictate to the agency that in theory regulates their industry in the way that the big telecom companies do with the FCC oh, sure. and with many other examples of that. So it's a safety question. But it's also coming back to what we were talking about at the beginning of our conversation. This is a question about government. It's the corporate state. It's the corporate takeover of government. The regulatory agencies become delegators. The FAA delegated the inspection role beyond belief uh, to the assembly floor uh, in Renton, Washington. They basically said, Boeing, pick your two inspectors. Have one say this meets the standard. Have the other say I, representing the FAA, agree and then the FAA rubber stamps. But it's really not the FAA's fault. It's Congress's fault. It's Trump's fault. It's the White House's fault. Obama accelerated the, the delegation. And four weeks before the Indonesian crash, Congress passed an authorization bill for the FAA, pushing the FAA to delegate even more to Boeing. Now, why is Congress doing it? Well, Boeing gives campaign cash to 330 out of 535 members of Congress every year. Boeing has 100 full-time lobbyists. And get this, almost every member of Congress takes freebies from the airlines. They take free upgrades. They take free first class. They take waiver of reservation fee changes. We sent a detailed survey twice last year, 15 freebie privileges uh, categories to every member of Congress. And we said, please fill out the survey. Which ones do you take? 
Which ones don't you take? We didn't get a single answer. That's the kind of corruption that, that starts with the Congress. That's why it's reformed the Congress is so important because we the people, just 1% of us, 1%, two and a half million people watching Congress, it's the whole Congress and the future of the families of all the American people. Absolutely. Well, the last question uh, that um, I really have time to ask you here, and it's one that I've long since wanted to ask you, and uh, it's not really about the 2000 election so much as it is about what the the attitudes that people have around that and around you, what that tells us about politics in our current uh, contemporary climate. Because, you know, you, you hear this word spoiler. Ralph Nader was a spoiler in 2000. Ralph Nader gave us George Bush, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. But the truth is that it seems like, and as we've seen recently, even with Bernie Sanders, it seems like the spoiler, quote unquote, is not somebody who impacts the election results, but rather somebody who, through being to the left of the mainstream of Democrats and of Clintonites exposes how right-wing the Democrats really are. And I think that that was, to, to a large extent, the role that you kind of played in 2000, and I think that they've never forgiven you for it. So I, I want to ask you, I mean, is the quote-unquote spoiler really what they say it is, or is the spoiler that which exposes them? Well, it's the word is scapegoating. The Democratic Party, which can't landslide the worst... Republican Party in history, the most cruelest, the most Wall Street, the most warmongering, the most vicious against labor and consumers and universal health care. They can't landslide them because they never look at themselves in the mirror and say, gee, maybe it's because we're dialing for the same corporate dollars for our campaigns. So instead of looking at the mirror, it's always someone else's fault, isn't it? In 2000, oh, it's the Green Party Nader's fault. Really? Gore won the election. The Electoral College threw it into Florida, and Jeb Bush took the rest uh, uh, of the ball game uh, for his brother, George W. Bush, and Antonin Scalia finished it off with a judicial coup d'etat, stopping the Florida Supreme Court order of a recount, which Gore would have won. Okay, so <laughs> you've got... Now, in, in, in 2016, hey, Democrats, you couldn't beat a corporate buffoon, a man who doesn't read and is p proud of it, a man who has disgusting personal uh, violations of proper norms, a guy who cheats his uh, creditors, his workers, his shareholders, a guy who's one step ahead of the sheriff and you couldn't beat him. And what do the Democrats say? Oh, it's the Russians. It's the Russians. They're the ones who did it. So this is a corrupt party, and Bernie Sanders trying to change it from the inside. And others are trying to change it from the outside. But you can't have a democracy, Eric, if you don't have competitive elections. And you can't have competitive elections if you can't have multi-candidates on the ballot to give voters voices and choices. That's what it's all about. I mean, the, the Democrats, and Gore knows this. He doesn't blame the Greens. He knows why he lost. He lost his home state of Tennessee. If he won it, he'd have been president. He won the popular vote. The Electoral College took it away from him. It went into Florida where the Republicans stole it 15 ways to Sunday. And it ended up in the Supreme Court, 5-4, which is, as I say, a judicial usurpation. And uh, so that, that's what it's all about. We have to focus on the Congress, Congress, Congress. That's the lever. That's the fulcrum. And we can do it because we know their names. There's only 535 of them. 
We organized back in the districts. About 140 of them are on our side on most of these issues anyway, which is a good start. That's why in my column, I list all kinds of hearings that the House of Representatives now should have. Hearings on corporate crime, hearings on the causes of poverty, hearings on the need to fund the Congressional Office of Technology to stop these military technology in Silicon Valley uh, uh, foolhardy uh, uh, technologies that, that are, if they're not dangerous, they take control of people's privacy. We want uh, investigations into speculation on Wall Street and attacks on Wall Street speculation, hearings on consumer protection, fundamental reform of our tax laws, hearings reviewing the failed military and foreign policies in their boomerangs, hearing on the planet's environmental disruptions from the climate crisis to water usage to soil erosion, deforestation, and the ocean's pollution, hearing on electoral reforms. That's extremely important. And finally, Hearings on opening up Congress, which itself is an exclusionary cocoon. Try getting a hold of your member of Congress. Try getting a hold of a staff. It's almost impossible to get through to your own member of Congress unless you want to have, you know, uh, a birthday card sent to you or a graduation card sent to you. So go to Nader.org, read uh, Counterpunch magazine, and get engaged. It only takes 1% or less of the American people to turn our country around. I couldn't agree more. Um, I, I'm, I'm really honored uh, that you came on the show. Um, I've been a long, I, I, I've been a supporter of yours since I've been politically aware, and uh, I continue to be, and I'm really grateful to have, uh, to have you on the show. Uh, again, listeners, the website, Nader.org, the Ralph Nader Radio Hour. Go to the website, sign up for the column to be delivered to your inbox every week, and of course, the book, How the Rats Reformed the Congress, very, very important book. Book, get it as a gift, get it for yourself, do yourself a favor, read it, pass it along to other people, and have them read it as well. Ralph Nader, thank you so much for coming on the show today. Thank you very much, Eric, and thank everybody at Counterpunch. I just sent in my subscription again. Thank you so much, and thank you as always, listeners, and we will chat again real soon.